0: The world is a much better place because of internal innovators, and our future does depend on liberating and achieving the liberation ourselves as employees to innovate.
1: Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Kaihan Krippendorf, and we're going to be talking about his latest book that absolutely blew my mind. It's all about driving innovation from within a guide for internal entrepreneurs. And this was so fantastic for me because I realized that as somebody who works for Valley but still has a drive to do a lot of crazy, innovative things. I always wondered, like, what are the ways that I need to operate? Because the only thing that's out there usually speaks to entrepreneurs. And there's some subtle differences that we need to highlight, which Kaihan has taken the time to do the research, find those differences and give you that blueprint on how to operate to be effective, be motivated and make some radical changes as a superhuman within an organization. Kaihan, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: No, thank you for having me here. Great honor.
1: Now, your book is fantastic. And I really want to get a chance for people that are listening to get a taste of these ideas that really blew my mind. Because let's be honest, everybody follows that Steve Jobs started something from a garage, and then built Apple. And this is the only way to success is just being an entrepreneur. And if you're anybody with any inclination towards innovation, you might as well quit your job and become an entrepreneur. But What I love, and I think this is a great way to get started, is you did research and realized that this was not the true full extent of the story, and I'd love for us to kick it off from there.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you think about those names that you mentioned, Steve Jobs, you could add to that Elon Musk and Bill Gates, the Airbnb guys, Michael Dell, Zuckerberg, they all follow this path of getting an idea when you're in college sometime and then not unlike the hero journey of ancient mythology, they step into a cave and that cave is the garage and then they build this thing and they launch it. But actually what I did was I wanted to see if that was truly the path of innovation. And so I found a list that was vetted by a group of professors of the 30 most transformative innovations over the last 30 years. I'm talking about the big ones like the internet, email, DNA sequencing, MRI, solar technology. And I said, who are the primary conceivers of that? Where do those ideas come from? Employees or entrepreneurs? And what I found was that over 70% of those innovations came from employees, not entrepreneurs. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, mind-blowing.
1: Because everybody thinks only entrepreneurs drive these kinds of innovations. So realizing that, what are things that people should be aware of when it comes to being someone innovative within an organization? Do organizations usually have spaces for people to do that? Like, how does it come together?
0: Yeah, what I found is that Most of the internal interviewers that I interviewed, I interviewed 150 of them for this, is they rarely followed a process or rarely were they part of the innovation group or the incubation team or won some internal business plan competition. Usually they see an opportunity, something that the world needs, something that they're passionate about, something that the company needs, and they just take action on it. So like the first thing I would say is like, don't think of it as waiting for your boss to lay out a program. But when you see something that you care about that you know is needed, you just start taking action to pursue it. There are a number of differences between how you do that internally versus externally, of course, but it still begins with the same seeing an opportunity and taking action.
1: And I love it because we're going to talk about the three attribute that entrepreneurs usually lack and that the people that innovate internally need to have, as well as the barriers you'll typically face if you choose that route to develop that innovation within an organization, which begs me the question, why would I decide to develop the innovation within an organization? If I have an idea, why wouldn't I just quit and just do it myself?
0: I mean, so many reasons, but I guess the two big ones that seem to pop out is, A, you have scale that entrepreneurs could only dream of. If you come up with an innovation, then you can... Reach channels and markets and tap sales forces and customers that would take an entrepreneur a long time. So you can have a much bigger impact. The second thing is it's lower risk, right? You're risking your company's money, not your money. It doesn't mean that you get fewer of the return. So if you do do it from inside, it's unlikely that you're going to become a billionaire, but you don't have to risk your family's financial future or eat ramen noodles in order to do it. So you get that intrinsic value of having an impact without carrying the risk
1: well you talked about ramen noodles i really love those so i don't know i might be willing yeah. <laughs> but you talked about this issue of scale like how does that differentiate within the organization
0: yeah so when a company begins like they're a startup they're a disruptor they're risk-taking and then what happens is once they find their market you know the product market fit and the business model, they kind of have the secret formula and they shift towards wanting to repeat that formula. So what they do is they introduce bureaucracy, they start narrowing tasks, they tightly monitor those tasks, they become risk averse. That makes sense because you kind of have the solution, you want to not diverge from the solution. But if you scale beyond that, four things come into play that really make it exciting to innovate from within. The first I already mentioned that you have scale that other people don't have. The second thing is you have capabilities. Like if you're sitting in a big, Company, you've got people that are amazing people and experts in areas that you would have to beg, borrow, and steal to get for as an entrepreneur. You've got people in R and D, you've got people in sales and marketing, and you can tap these colleagues to do something great. The third thing is you have innovation resources. It sometimes seems more difficult, but getting the funding to start a business is so much work that entrepreneurs often say that half of their time is spent just fundraising. And so you get access to innovation resources. And the fourth thing is you have this ability to diversify risk. Jeff Bezos has this phrase. He says, if you have a one in 10 chance of a 100 times payoff, you got to take that bet every time. But you got to be ready to lose nine times out of 10. And so if you think about it, what he's saying is that an entrepreneur can take one bet. There's a one in 10 chance of a hundred times payoff, right? But if you are an innovator from inside, you can manage a portfolio of bets, and if you do nine or ten things, you're like guaranteed a ten times payoff. So those are four reasons why innovating from within is really exciting and different than being an entrepreneur.
1: That's really powerful to know and to recognize. I mean, I think there's a lot of organization who might not see what allowing the space for innovation can contribute to the company. I'd be curious to know, what would you say to a leadership team when it comes to recognizing
0: how powerful this is? You're exactly right. There's a lot of research. If you want to dig into it, there's a whole area of study around entrepreneurial intensity. And it is a way of looking at the level of entrepreneurialism within an organization. Long story short, plenty and plenty of studies that show a high correlation between more entrepreneurialism, people more frequently pursuing entrepreneurial activities that are more innovative and risk-taking, proactive. And if you unlock that, you enjoy faster revenue growth, higher profit margins, and greater shareholder return. So there's a clear financial link to empowering, enabling, liberating people to innovate from within.
1: And if we switch that from the employee's perspective here, where it's like, okay, I'm an employee, I recognize innovation can be driven without needing to leave the company and pursue my own idea. I think it'd be a great way to look into what are these attributes? Because someone would want to determine, do I step out, and be an entrepreneur? Or do I do it within an organization? Can we talk about those differences in attributes between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah. So I looked at research that shows a statistically significant correlation between an attribute of a person, and their level of effectiveness as an internal entrepreneur. And there are three things that make them look like entrepreneurs. They're innovative thinkers. So they see a problem and they come up with innovative solutions for it. That makes sense. They have strong market awareness, which is they understand customer needs and industry needs, and that makes sense as well. And they're proactive, so they take autonomous action. They see something and they act on it. They don't wait for someone to tell them. So that makes them look like an entrepreneur. Now, many entrepreneurs, at least some, many that I know that have sold their businesses into established companies, they stay for the two or three years they have to stay, right? And then they leave. They feel kind of constrained within an established organization, and I I think it's because when you do it from inside, there are three other attributes that you want to put into play. You want to activate that you don't necessarily need significantly as an entrepreneur. The first is, I call it strategic risk-taking. They tend not to be risk seekers, but they look to instead create risk asymmetry, where you bet a little in order to get a lot. As I said before, you're not betting your money, you're betting the company's money. So you want to calculate these strategic risk trade-offs. The second is there's an intrinsic value and motivation for innovating. Going back to ramen noodles, unless you love ramen noodles, as you do, you want to appreciate that you aren't going to get the full financial benefit. You're going to share that with the company if you are successful. But the innovators that actually enjoy doing it from inside, they have this intrinsic value. They enjoy it, the act of it. It's playful. They're doing it for a purpose. They want to have an impact. And the last one's political acumen is that successful internal innovators, they view the political challenge as part of the problem solving process. In fact, when you talk to them, they actually really enjoy untangling the political dynamics, the stakeholders and who influences whom. It's an exciting part of the problem, whereas frustrated internal innovators, they'll say, I built this beautiful mousetrap and there's something wrong with my company that they don't see the value of this mousetrap because they don't enjoy doing the politics.
1: And I think that's such an important part. When I read this, I changed from the position of being, oh my God, I'm such a victim. Poor me. I'm so brilliant. I come up with these ideas that get shut down. But when you outline this idea of political acumen, it was really understanding. And I think you lay it out in a way that there's an additional stakeholder, which is the internals Of the company. And I think this is game changing for people because then you're not facing all of this adversity or resistance within the organization with victimization, but really an understanding that this is something that is part of the game and it is just a game.
0: Yeah. And I think it's helpful to think of your company as a customer. You have two customers. An idea that works for your end customer, but not for your employer, is not something that is going to work from inside. If you love your organization, you want to understand, just like you love your customer, you want to understand what their needs are, you want to understand what your company's needs are. One woman that I interviewed for this, she became a good friend of mine and was a client of mine, Heather Davis. She was working at a company that owns a lot of farmland, let's just say, their largest private owner farmland. And they were having trouble getting workers. And so she flew to one of their orchards to see what the work was like. And she saw this is really tough work, lifting bags and it's kind of monotonous and lonely. But her son has autism, and so she recognized this is the perfect kind of work for people with autism. And so she launched an innovation called Fruits of Employment that helped people with autism get work on farms. Now, if we dissect that, what she recognized is, here is something that I'm passionate about, helping people with autism. It's something that the world needs, which is the world needs our fruit and food. But it's also something that the company needs. The company needs these farms to be productive. So you look for that sweet spot where all three things are true and then magic happens. But that requires, as you're saying, to see your employer as a stakeholder, as a customer to love and understand.
1: And I love the acronym you created with INNOVATE and talking about those seven barriers that exist. But before we go to that, I wanted to dig a bit more about this intrinsic motivation. It sounds to me that organizations need to recognize that they need to have a very solid and authentic purpose to be able to see people that have that intrinsic motivation want to develop them internally. Is there a correlation between that and people just wanting to leave the organization be entrepreneurs instead of developing it within when they have that clarity of what the company stands for?
0: Absolutely. And that's why I think that we're going to start seeing strategies evolve from very complex plans to simple statements of purpose that everyone can understand and communicate and rally behind. Now, Intrinsic motivation, if we break it down, really is you get value from doing it. Extrinsic motivation is you have to do it in order to result in an outcome and you get value from the outcome. So getting a bonus for innovating is an extrinsic motivator because it's not the work itself that you enjoy. If we shift that instead to intrinsic motivation, what you see is there's three forms of intrinsic motivation. One is play. Hey, this is fun. The other is purpose. And by purpose, I mean the joy you get from having a goal and achieving the goal. And the third one is potential, which I think is what you're talking about, is that what we're doing is we're building a cathedral. I'm putting this brick on the wall because we're building something that is going to impact the world that I care about. So you really want to shift to those three intrinsic motivators and away from the extrinsic ones. I really love this because
1: I recognize so much of what we're doing at Mind Valley actually aligns very well to nurture entrepreneurs within the company. I mean, we innovate so fast, and I see myself being someone that I love being part of it. I love the mission. I mean, we're there to impact a billion lives. I remember I left being an entrepreneur to join Mind Valley because I went, wow, look at this bus. It's going crazy places that are far beyond my own imagination, and I want to be a part of this ride. And now I see. Every little thing that I've done, like I've created a network from entrepreneur within three weeks that I joined the company and instantly because we had the brand, because we had the recognition, we were able to gather all these customers, create an amazing event and things moved really fast and I got to see the fruits of my labor being the creation that I innovated on happen at a scale so rapidly that I think I would have needed a lot more patience and a lot more risk, like you say, having done it as an entrepreneur. And so when I started reading this, I was like, wow, okay, this is why I'm here.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think that Valley represents that kind of model of the future where you have a purpose, you recruit entrepreneurs and give them the freedom and the tools and the scale to make great things happen. Love it. So for people listening,
1: I mean, some of you are probably already self-selecting. If you're seeing yourself in the workplace and you're like, wow, I am someone that does that. I think if you are that person, you might have been like me where you had these moments. Oh my God, I need to deal with the politics. This is annoying. These sometimes generate gossip and frustration, but no, no, no. Here we're talking about how this is a skill you need to nurture and you need to treat the company like a client. And on that, I think it becomes really beautiful to talk about those seven barriers that spell out innovate, because that really is the things you need to navigate, quote unquote, politically to really take advantage of all the advantages that come when you innovate from within.
0: Yeah. And I interviewed 150 internal innovators. And I asked them, what are the barriers that you see? And then I saw seven barriers emerge as being most cited. And I kind of massaged them into a framework that spells innovate without the end, just to make it easy for you to remember. So I, innovate starts with intent. You activate the intent to innovate. Many would-be internal entrepreneurs have just given up. When you don't have the intent, you stop seeing opportunities to innovate. Then once you activate the intent, then comes need, end for need. So that is understanding what your company needs and what your market needs. 55% of mid-level managers can't even name two of their company's top strategic priorities. So really understanding what your company needs. After you've done those two, you're kind of innovating the right spaces. Next comes options, which is generating a flow of options, not getting too attracted to just one. There was a French philosopher whose name I don't remember right now. He said, there's nothing more dangerous than an idea when it's the only idea you have. So the options about having a whole portfolio, continuous flow of ideas. Then comes value blockers, which really says your idea is going to have a natural business model around it. That business model might be inconsistent with your existing business model. And so instead of seeing the business model conflicts, which I call value blockers, as reasons for why, oh, it can't be done here. Instead, you say, this is just another problem to solve. How can I re-engineer my idea so it removes those value blockers? Act is really about having to take action in order to prove your idea when your organization might ask you to prove the idea before they let you take action. So this is about taking action on small agile experiments and learning how to do that. Then comes team who's going to run the experiment and build the idea? What's interesting is that while an entrepreneur can recruit people and you can all report to one boss, probably the people that are going to be on your team do not report to the same boss unless you go to the CEO. You've got someone in operations, you've got someone in accounting, you've got someone in sales, you've got someone in R&D. The challenge of pulling the team together is fundamentally different because it's more about inspiring people who you can't formally make, get on your team. you got to inspire them by the possibility of the innovation, rally support around that, rally your team together. And then environment is what we just talked about, managing the political environment in order to create or find these islands of freedom where you have the liberty to pursue the innovation, I-N-O-V-A-T-E. That's powerful.
1: And so as I navigate this, I'm thinking of an example because recently I started quote unquote beta testing this idea of doing local meetups at Mind Valley and just getting communities together and seeing how we could do a blueprint where people can meet up and then sharing this to all of our ambassadors of the brand to start having meetups happen around the world. Like I could see the vision. So this is an idea I'm currently working on doing this internal innovation, but there's a lot of stakeholders at play because it touches on so many different departments. And so when I worked this model, first I looked at Intel, intent and as an intent i was like yeah i'd love to create more opportunities for people to connect to learn to push humanity forward it's so aligned with my reasons being at mind Valley. so then to me when i had that purpose be clear then it became so much fun that i wanted to innovate on it and then the need is i know most of our communities are digital so now i know there's a need to get more physical things happen so i was like if we could create these meetups this will solve a core need of the company and i'd love for your advice on this because I had this as my only option, but I realized a lot of different people were also innovating in the company in different ways based on their idea of how that best is. Are you saying options is to consider other people's options or is to come up with different ways of pushing that innovation or just different innovations in general?
0: It's both. So you have identified a need, the need for enabling face-to-face physical interaction. And now you could have multiple options. You could have the local meetups and you could find what other solutions people have. So you kind of have a portfolio of options there. But now you multiply that, but there might be another need other than the physical, right? So you have a whole list of needs and you have a whole list of options around each one. In their options, I like to keep a portfolio. And if you took all of the options that you're aware of that you come up with and you say, are they easy or difficult? And if we did it, would it be high or low impact? And you you sort through that, you end up with some waste of time ideas that you can just Without even taking action on, you can know these are difficult and they're going to be low impact. You end up with a bunch of small tactical ideas that are easy and low impact. And those are things you can just do within your current role. You have what I call winning moves, which are the really easy, high impact ones. But what I find is that the really innovative ideas usually appear to be what I call crazy. They appear to be difficult to do, but if you could do them, then you would have a high impact. So, you know, my advice to you would be have a short list of ideas across those four. And what you're working on now might be either a winning move or a crazy idea. But if you have a crazy idea, don't drop it yet. Keep it on your list and every week or every month turn to it and see if there's some action you can take or something you can learn to see if you can turn that crazy idea into a winning move.
1: I love that. And so for me, for example, I decided another thing I could do is maybe we could do this on a digital format, do the same format of the meetup in a digital so it can nurture connections on Zoom. I'm like testing different models. But also I realized that when I faced a value blocker, which is your next element, I actually have faced a value blocker, which is because there's different business models, et cetera. And then they were saying, hey, you need to put this on hold. I realized that when I only have that one idea, I felt like I had attachment to it as opposed to simply let it go and move on. And so this is really the power of this having options. You have less attachment, so you can really make sure it aligns with the business model. Is that correct?
0: Yes, but I wouldn't give up on the idea because you see a value blocker initially. I would stop and say, okay, the value blocker is a design problem. And how could I redesign the idea to remove the value blocker? For example, what would you say the value blocker is for you for that idea?
1: Well, for example, there's a paid membership, and so if you're doing meetups, and one of the benefits of being a paid member is you get access to meetups. If there's a free meetup, then it cannibalizes the business.
0: Great. Okay. So let's say that's a value blocker. Let's brainstorm. What are three ways that we could remove that value blocker? Even though we're brainstorming, brainstorming again, but we're brainstorming execution.
1: So if I'm just thinking of ideas out loud, is if people want to join the meetup, they have to pay. If they're a member, they don't. Maybe when you're a member, you get to host these. But if you just attend, you need to become a member if you want to host your own.
0: Yep. And maybe get sponsors for the meetups itself and to have them be paid by someone else. So now we have three potential monetization schemes. Maybe none of them will work, but we kind of move from, oh, no, they'll never do it because it's going to cannibalize to, well, maybe there's a way around it, right? And so you start problem solving around the value blockers to remove the value blockers.
1: I love it and so before we go to act I wanted to add something else that you mentioned in options that actually struck me is that sometimes I find myself coming up with a lot of those low impact low involvement or low impact high difficulty tasks and I feel so excited about pursuing them anyways so what you're saying is like really take the time to assess what impact it has there's so many times I came up with ideas like join this new webinar mastermind this is great but then like 10 people will log in and on the scale of mind value that just doesn't even move a drop in the water and so you're saying a step that you need to do with your innovations is really make that impact assessment.
0: Yes, and I would suggest that maybe you have on your short list a bunch of ideas I don't know, four or five or six or seven that you're pursuing and you've got some of the tactical things, but you've also got a winning move and a crazy idea.
1: Love it. So you kind of do an ideation phase, come up with all these things, kind of sort them out and then make sure that you got a couple that you can prioritize these winning moves and crazy ideas. Then you go through the value blockers, and I love how we just brainstorm that really quickly, just identify what the issues are, move around it, come up with more ideas, and probably even involve the people that create the block on ways to solve it, right?
0: Yep, yep. So let's say like we have a hypothesis that a way to monetize this and avoid cannibalization is that people who host don't have to pay, but people who don't host have to pay. That's one hypothesis. So now we want to say, what is a really inexpensive experiment that we could run to test whether that is true? Because kind of the old way of doing things is to go look for data to prove something. But I think it's Reed Hoffman who said, you can't do a financial projection on how someone will react to a product if they've never seen the product before. So we could go and try to find someone who has this model but we don't know how that'll translate here. So instead, what we're gonna do is run a very inexpensive experiment. So that could be maybe, if I gave you $500 and I said, I'd like you to run an experiment to test if the model works in which the host doesn't pay, but other people pay.
1: Well, what I find interesting about the act is if I do that, I'd run my own test. I would host it myself and see how many pay to come, and then how many of them become members out of coming.
0: Great. And so what would be the number? It's good when you design the test to decide ahead of time what success requirements are. So how many people would need to come for you to say, okay, green light, I'm going to go to the next step. And how many convert to members? How many of those would have to convert to members? So
1: if I throw out numbers, I say if 30 people show up and I can get at least two people to become members out of that meetup, it's a game changer
0: great. And now you've designed the experiment. You go run the experiment. And if you get 30 and two, then you green light and you go to the next step, figure out what the next value blocker is and run another experiment. And you say, if it's not 30 or two, if it ends up being 30 and one or 28 and two, then I'm not going to do it. We're going to go to a different idea or a different financial model. Love it.
1: I want to dig more on the act here You know, there's this whole saying of saying it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. How does that play when you're an entrepreneur innovating within?
0: Yeah, I think that speaks to the proactivity. But what we want to do is we want to find creative ways to reduce the consequences of your action failing. Okay, so culturally, it's more helpful if you're in an organization and more organizations becoming this way that allow for risk taking and celebrate the learning that comes from risk taking. But if you do not work in an organization, and even if you do, you want to reduce the cost. So, like for example, Lee Iacocca, he was the CEO of Chrysler, and people came to him with an idea that they could release a new version of their Sebring car, a new convertible. And they had an idea of investing millions of dollars in a market study. And he said, Well, before we do that, why don't we just run a low cost experiment? Let's take a current Sebring, let's cut off the roof. And let's drive it around and see if people like it. So find creative ways to maximize your learning while minimizing the cost. Or Zappos, when it launched, it didn't want to invest a lot of money in maintaining inventory of shoes, so it created a website and had photos. And if you clicked and you bought something, they would go across the street to a local retailer and they'd buy it and they ship it to you. Now they made no money off of that, but it was an inexpensive way to run the experiment. A lot of our clients like this idea by Michael Schrage. He's the author of a great book called The Innovators Hypothesis. He advocates for a five-five-five experiment. Five people, five thousand dollars, five weeks, one or two days a week, run an experiment, see what you can learn. So that's kind of what it's about is being proactive, begging for forgiveness, but the forgiveness you have to beg for is less significant because you've only lost $5,000. You've lost the roof of one car.
1: So you still exercise a high degree of responsibility on the risk that you do take.
0: (laughs) Right. Yes. Which is why that attribute of strategic risk-taking is important.
1: And now talking about this team, I remember this person talking from an entrepreneurial perspective, like how an entrepreneur gets to recruit talent initially. His name is Kylie Nung. He works with 500 startups and he called this element the heist. You got to talk to people like how do they want to be a part of the heist? The Ocean's 11 crew, they all are from different departments. They all get together and they got to rob that big casino. It sounds like the team element here within an organization can follow similar rules where you need to be someone that really rallies the troop, like be the George Clooney within the company, getting that ragtag group of people to support the the idea. Does this resonate within the model?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. The woman who really inspired this book was a client of mine and her name's Jean Foual. And I won't go to the whole story, but she was working at a publisher and she had an idea and she wanted to pursue the idea. And she held a pizza party. She sent out an email to people and said, this is generally my idea. If you're interested in this, you know, I'd like to have pizza and we can talk about it. And she said, if seven people show up, I will continue. If less than seven people show up, I'm not going to pursue it. And she was delightfully surprised to find that 30 people showed up for that pizza. I mean, they ran out of pizza. But these weren't just editors. These were people from all parts of the business. They were people from sales and marketing and operations and accounting and finance that were all excited about the idea. So there are a lot of team frameworks to look at, but they all do talk about aligning the team around one big important goal, And using some metrics and data to track the achievement of that goal so it really becomes a game. Can you imagine like playing a football game or a soccer game and no one's keeping score? It's just not as fun. So that's a big part of it. Building a scoreboard that everyone can see and see our progress towards that goal. Anyways, there are other key success factors that go around building and maintaining this team.
1: I love it because you're actually asking people to do something that's outside of their core responsibilities and they all get into it because they all have at least some level of intrinsic motivation to see this idea come to life.
0: Yes, that's your currency, intrinsic motivation, purpose, play, potential.
1: Love it. So finally, our last one on the list here is environment. Can you tell us a bit more about environment and what we need to consider here?
0: Yeah, environments, you know, Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor for lacking creativity. Steve Wozniak, the co founder of Apple, he was an employer at HP and he presented the technology that eventually became the first Apple computer five times and he was rejected all five times. Now, just because your company rejects the idea doesn't mean it's not a good idea. So what it really involves is finding what I call an island of freedom. When I did the research, what I found is that there are four sets of drivers you want to look at to find this island of freedom. And in the book, I lay them out in detail. You want leadership that has the right attributes. You want talent. So you find people that have those six attributes that we talked about. You want to find the right organizational structures and the right cultural norms. And often the place where you're going to find that isn't the obvious place. Like the guy who invented the PlayStation, Ken Kutaragi at Sony, the logical place for him to take his idea was in the electronics business because there they have all the know-how and relationships and suppliers. But he recognized that They didn't have the right culture and organizational structure. So instead, he asked for permission to build that in Sony Entertainment, the group that manages artists and musicians, because they had a culture that was more fluid. So thinking strategically about where to take your idea, it's not in the obvious place. It's often in an island of freedom that you identify in some other part of the organization.
1: I'm so in appreciation to all the work that you put behind this book, this ideas and how it's actually very laid out. Like you go through the book and you really get a blueprint of how to function to really push your ideas forward and make a really big impact no matter where you are within an organization. And as the companies that listen to this, if you're in a leadership position, you're maybe noticing your environment might not be supporting this. There's a lot of cues on what you can do, case studies on what it will drive, value that it can create. I mean, PlayStation for Sony, if PlayStation wasn't created, you're talking about a major amount of value. Evaluation that was created for the company that if you didn't have the right culture and you didn't support these kinds of internal ideas to come forward, then you would have had someone start an independent company and not even bring it within the house, you know? I'd love to close this off as to as these ideas are becoming more popularized, and your book is certainly going to support that. What do you expect to see more from individuals and organizations as they understand these ideas and its
0: power? Well, I think that. We need to create a movement. I want to say a revolution from inside. While we can wait for our leaders to adjust the culture and structures and things for the top, we don't have to wait. We can drive innovation from within. If we do that, I think we're going to see organizations evolve from top-down, centrally planned economies, which is really how organizations are designed right now, into open platforms that give people the freedom to see, seize, rally the resources to pursue opportunities, and not just for them and for the company, but for the world. Because if it were not for employee innovators, you would not have a mobile phone or the internet or wouldn't be able to get an MRI or get a stent if you got sick. The world is a much better place because of internal innovators, and Our future does depend on liberating and achieving the liberation ourselves as employees to innovate.
1: Love it. Kaihan, thank you so much for your time. This was mind-blowing and such rich information and protocols for people to apply, understand, and really unleash the entrepreneur within themselves as they're within an organization and even beyond that. So for everybody listening, understand a lot of these innovations do come from the inside and you can play a key part in driving those innovations if you understand that on top of the core attributes of an entrepreneur, you also need to have this idea of risk calculation, like understanding risk, having that political acumen. It's part of the game and make sure you understand your organization like a client and if you're somebody that's intrinsically motivated by that mission that you're a part of the organization for then these ideas need to be driven forward and you need to face these barriers in the best way possible follow the innovate the intent need options value blackers you want to act build the team environment all of these were covered today and there's so many ways that you can feel empowered moving forward as someone that really drives those innovations that doesn't give up easily and really makes the world a better place from your actions and your ideas that. Can can be recognized and implemented within any organization that you're a part of. And if you're on the leadership team listening to this, I think you understand that there's some massive value that comes from understanding the impact your employees can have when you give them the freedom to innovate and drive value within the organization. Once again, Kaihan, thank you so much for being here. And everybody, thanks for listening.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Jason.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the episode with Kaihan Krippendorf. His book is so amazing at really giving you a different perspective on how you can drive that innovation as you're inside the company. Looking at these internal players as a client, understanding them and really navigating that playing field was really giving me a new appreciation of all the extra layers of complexity that come from driving that innovation from within. But the impact that you can have is so much bigger and the risk so much lower. So it's so powerful to take this new mindset and really apply it and thrive within the workplace because it's really the people inside an organization that can make some radical changes in the world by pushing their ideas forward. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to rate this and let us know what you particularly liked. And if you'd like to see more content like this, we're super excited to bring you these content pieces and podcast episodes, absolutely commercial free. And so if you see some friends that also would need this as they are in the workplace, maybe struggling with some of these ideas, share them this podcast. I know it's been extremely helpful for me. Hopefully it was helpful for you and can be helpful for the people you care about as well. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, I'll talk to you later.